Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Our podcast looks at research in psychology and the ways that we can apply it to work with our clients. We're hoping to provide a bit of information to therapists out there and shine a bit of a light for those of you who aren't therapists on what goes on in a therapy room. We'll be chatting today about the therapeutic alliance with both kids and adults and then chatting about a couple of articles that have caught our eye this week. Hope you enjoy. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Hunter, what do you have? The article that I have got to discuss today is grandly titled Therapeutic Alliance Predicts Symptomatic Improvement Session by Session. So this is a couple of years old study, a 2013 study in the Journal of Counseling Psychology and it's a Swedish author, Falkenstrom. Hmm. My Swedish, I knew one word of Swedish, which is tack. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. That's it. So... To listeners who don't really know, there's many, many different definitions about therapeutic alliance in therapy. And layman's terms is like, are you getting along with your, with your therapist? Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a bit more complicated than that, but that's like a nice kind of like, you know, how, what's their relationship like with your therapist? And uh, many different definitions of this in the academic literature. And one of the most common versions is by... Borden, uh, and he says that, or he or she says that the alliance is defined the agreement on the goals and tasks of therapy in the context of positive, effective bond between patients and thera- therapist. So, uh, I know that sounds kind of dry, but mm. I mean, as a therapist personally, I find it very, very interesting to think about um, you know, what's this, what's the connection between me, how has the connection between me and the client, how and the client and me and how how's that working? Are, you know, are we working on the right things? Mm. Have we agreed on that? Do we kind of get along? And that definition kind of frames it in that it is a working relationship with yeah. a purpose. Yeah. Different from say a friendship or another sort of relationship where you might be chatting about similar things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and like because it is interesting because you can have a working a therapeutic alliance, a working relationship with someone who. You, you might not otherwise get along with mm. or you might not really, you know, you might sort of find boring or kind of potentially obnoxious or frustrating or you like if you met them socially. Yeah. Um, or And the same thing is, you know, you can, I've had many occasions where you get along really well with a particular client, like, you know, your personalities kind of click in a particular kind of way, but that's not necessarily a good therapeutic alliance because yeah. you might not actually be doing any work, yeah. thera- therapeutic work. That's why I'm interested in it. I'm interested in how how you get along, how, how you and your client get along in terms of working relationship and the factors that kind of influence that and then why that's important. So what's interesting is that the therapeutic alliance is thought to be curative in of itself. There's not just a condition to be uh, of being able to do therapy, like having a therapeutic alliance, but also that the alliance itself is meant to be curative or is thought to be curative. So if you've got a good 
therapeutic alliance with your patient or if you're if you're seeing a psychologist and you have a good working relationship with them a good therapeutic alliance then you then that will actually help uh, resolve some of the psychological problems and so mm. so the um, paper I read talked about a meta-analysis of over 200 studies and found a correlation which is just a measure of a relationship between one factor and another factor and so the correlation about uh, 0.275 which is a reasonable association Mm. not a large kind of it's not a large effect just the therapeutic alliance itself that that's a reasonable effect yeah like that's significant yes it's not looking at kind of um particular treatment interventions or anything like that so this finding is usually interpreted as meaning a good therapeutic alliance between patient and therapist uh, causes better outcome or better outcomes in therapy so on that it's like it's important to work on the alliance if if, you know if the alliance between you and the patient's not going well yeah like or you know if you're going to see a psychologist and you and the psychologist aren't getting along then one of you should really be trying to address that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and certainly that was what was taught to me in training, although I've got to say I was never really taught on how to build an alliance. No, me neither. It was just emphasised that it was something that you needed to do. Yes. Yeah. it was, And there was this thing of like, what, active listening? Make yeah. sure you active listen, which is the repeating back what someone says, nodding Attending. Lot, attending, yeah. not checking your phone. Yeah. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, this kind of idea of... The many factors that build a good therapeutic alliance, which is, I would say, like listening to someone, like, you know, being clear about whose roles and what's roles. But also, like, if I think about the good therapeutic alliances or, or just working alliances with, like, some of my managers, like, one of my managers, he's, like, really firm about, like, are we doing this today? Are we doing mm-hmm. that today? What's going on? You know, yeah. you, you're not listening to me today, so we need to do this. You know, like, this willingness to pull you up. Yeah. And a good therapist will... Set boundaries. Set boundaries yeah. and do that, right? So, um, but yeah, I've sort of learned that by feel, not by... Yeah, not by any instruction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Given the, I don't know, given the number of classes I've done on statistics or, or yeah. therapeutic strategies. Yeah, know. you just don't learn that sort of thing. No. And, I mean, the way that it's always um, come back to me is that kind of... Um, it's always emphasised that we should be genuine with our clients and that that's how, that's a way of building the relationship. And so then it's kind of like, well, if you're being your your professional self, then that relationship will flow on, away yeah. you go. But sometimes it needs more than that. It yeah. needs more of a conscious effort. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So... This study is somewhat dry in one respect, which is that they sought to address a methodological issue with prior research. So basically, they were the they they were sort of saying, look, just because we've previously found that you measure alliance once and then later on that's associated with good outcomes, doesn't actually causally mean that those two things are linked. Yeah. Right. Um, and it could just be a pseudo-association. So basically, they wanted to see whether the relationship between therapeutic alliance and symptom improvement wasn't just a, was not just a function of prior symptom improvement in therapy. So let me try and say that in English because it took me a few goes to kind of get my head around this. So, so it's basically, so if you improve as a result of 
therapy, your subsequent subsequent rating of an alliance should increase, right? So, yeah. and then that good alliance would then be seen as a good predictor of outcome down the track. But really, that the good outcome would actually just be association of the prior improvements yeah. in therapy. Yeah, does that make makes sense? sense. Yeah. yeah, right. So, because basically, like anyone who improves early on is probably going to have a better outcome than someone who doesn't improve early on. Yeah. So what they wanted to do was look at alliance as a predictor of outcome when adjusting for uh, prior symptom change. So symptom change prior to that alliance rating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they they kind of went through the literature with a fine tooth comb, with very impressive <laughs> um, literature review, and. Uh, I won't go through it, but the and, but the one interesting aspect of this study was they didn't want to use a bit, a bit between patient design. So they measuring they didn't want to measure therapy a therapeutic alliance once for each person looking at an outcome, because the only variation there is between individuals, like between individual A, individual B, individual yeah. C, rather than looking at how that alliance changes over time for that person. Um, and so because you can have a positive relationship across the population, but you can't necessarily generalize that to an individual. Yeah. So, and they make, so you use an example of exercise, increased exercise um, across the population is associated with lower heart attack risk. Yeah. But for some individuals, increased exercise could increase a heart attack. Yeah. And both things can be true at the same time. So. And so, yeah, essentially they just hypothesize that if a higher alliance scores after a given session will predict lower symptom scores immediately before the next session when controlling for past improvement, uh, past symptoms, if that makes sense. Yeah. They used 83 therapists, mm-hmm. 28% were psychologists, 62% were social workers. There was a mean of 4.6 sessions of, that patients attended. Um, there's a mixed sample of problems being treated for or treatments administered. Pet peeve, sample <laughs> description was in the method section. <laughs> you keep finding that. <laughs> it's pod two. <laughs> Both articles. I'm going to have to look at the APA guidelines and make sure that I'm getting that right. Um, and they, they didn't do a, have a really great description of the administration and procedure, but the impression is that they gave questionnaires at each appointment. So they gave a, so a measure of distress... Uh, which was the clinical outcomes in routine evaluation outcome measure. Mm-hmm. So that's distressed during the previous week. They gave it at the start of the session. And at the end of the session, they were given the working alliance short form. Um, and so that was a measurement of bond, task, and goals in therapy. And then they, so the sample had 964 people in it, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, they did some. Very, very complicated statistical analyses. They had formulas. Oh, impressive. Lots of them. Right, yeah. Um, I, I think I followed most of it. Uh, but <laughs> um, and in short, they found that, like what they hypothesized, was that higher alliance rate at the end of one session predicted lowered symptoms, symptoms at the start of the next session. Um, and when they controlled for the effect of change in symptoms in the previous week, this relationship was exactly the same. So it, okay. it, it was kind of... So what, it holds. It holds. Yeah. Um, even when they kind of control for this in a quite a complicated way. What was interesting is that there was a, it was a small effect overall, but some subgroups were 
there was a, this effect was quite a lot higher. So they looked at people who were suffering from depression or suffering from anxiety, and this didn't moderate or change the relationship between alliance and outcome. But for pe people with personality problems, it did. Okay, yeah. So if you have a personality disorder or personality problems, I didn't sort of really define it that clearly in the, in the article. Um, the effect of alliance at the end of one session and symptoms measured at the next session was six times larger than wow. for depression or anxiety. Right. That's huge. It's, it's like really massive. Yeah. So kind of they, they conclude that, you know, this gives good evidence to support alliance as a causal mechanism for change in psychotherapy. Um, and they don't talk much about why personality problems would uh, have such a profound, like yeah. such a, a profound effect. Um, it does have some logical links, though, given that a lot of personality issues are around relationships yeah. and and attachment and, and feeling understood. Yeah, um, it would make sense that feeling that would then have a greater yeah impact. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, so yeah. it's like, so if you are able to main as a therapist maintain a good relationship yeah. or a good therapeutic alliance with your, so you know, your with your personality disorder patient or person person with the personality problems, you know, there's a clear agreement on on the task and goals of therapy, and like, and you've also got a good bond, and you're holding that when they have just so much dysfunction in their life with everyone else. Yeah. Um, then lots of theories, but you know, they would hold potentially hold you as a therapist as an, as a, or like a healthy adult mental model in their head that yes, you know, they're an important person or they're valid or you know, sets limits or whatever. And then, you know, and so that would help to improve symptoms or lot, keep symptoms attenuated or something. Yeah. That kind of Interesting. Sense. Yeah. I thought that was a really, really yeah. fascinating finding. It was interesting because they like very, very technical paper. Uh, limited discussion on some of the broader issues like I mean and so they they sort of they suggest that monitoring alliance is important not only at the start but all the way along you know if the alliance is worse than usual for a particular patient then symptoms are likely to be worse next time you know they don't really go into detail why but it makes sense you know the person who's seen for help and it doesn't go well need a task bond of gold and you as a patient could feel Isolated or annoyed, or therapy is ineffective, or you've got doubts about yeah. the process. How things are going. Yeah, how things are going, and then that would potentially result in, in poor outcomes. Hmm. Yeah, and they kind of say, you know, you don't talk about therapeutic alliance in every session, which I would probably think is probably a pretty good recommendation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to be harping on about it. No, well, imagine if you go and see a therapist and they're like, so how are we doing? Yeah. How's it going? Fine. Fine. <laughs> All right, for you, when do you when I, do you talk to talk with a client about therapy, uh, the, the 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 working alliance? I think most of the time when I do it, it's because I've noticed some kind of shift. Yeah. So there's something that I've felt in the room that the dynamics changed, or that um, perhaps something I've said hasn't hit the right mark, or those kind of moments where yeah. you kind of go, okay, let's check in before um, it expands or becomes even more complicated yeah. so it's um yeah usually like that occasionally at the end of say an assessment yeah i might check in 
um, because I think a lot of people feel obliged to continue with therapy, even if they don't actually have a, a feel comfortable with the therapist that's across from them. They feel like they've kind of they've started down this path and then that's it. Mm. And so I kind of like to check in at that point and go, "What do you reckon? Do you think this can work?" Yeah, and and that even that checking in can actually be a powerful therapy uh, alliance builder. Absolutely, yeah. Because then you're signalling to the person, look, yeah, yay or nay, like, yeah. And and even and you know even if they like, oh, I'm not sure, but the fact that you've signalled that, well, well, is 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 uh, a tick in your column. Yeah, and that they know that they can say that things aren't okay, yeah. and you're not going to flip out or go, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that it's something that you can hold and manage in the room. How about you? When do you? I think much the same as you, which is when I notice that something something's is different. Yeah. Um, then I might ask about it. I I always ask in the second session how did, how did they go between the first and yeah. How second. did they find last session? Was it good? I'm not yeah. interested in asking about me. I'm interested in how you went. Yeah. And, and I'm not asking for my own validation, but I'm asking for this. This is kind of the words I sort of say. So I mean that's sort of checking on how they're going, but I think that that can often kind of go you know oh that was a lot that wasn't a lot and i think and then from then it's like a case by case basis yeah i think what's very interesting is i've had at least one session that i i can remember that i had extremely divergent opinions about how that session went and it was really interesting to kind of then kind of go okay well we've both kind of walked away from with that with two different things yeah, and sort of so it's, so it's like I I find this interesting because I think well you can monitor it and you can be attuned to stuff and I think some therapists are better than others for, for you know skill level and experience and stuff and but even just day to day day absolutely day to day <laughs> yeah how busy your day has been how, oh, yeah. whether you've had a good night's sleep that's it yeah um, those kinds of things but it's not very uh, structured I think yeah. You know, I mean, you could you could give a questionnaire every session, but I don't I don't know whether that'd be a good thing. A lot of people wouldn't like that. No. Yeah. I mean, therapists. Therapists and like, clients. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and the, and these these authors talk about you know importance importance in recognizing ruptures in therapy and then addressing that. To any listener out there, it's like if you're not getting along with your therapist or it's not working for whatever reason or yeah. it's or it's stopped working, tell your therapist straight up, um, and because. It, it will probably be the most useful conversation you ever have with your therapist. I Absolutely. Reckon. Yeah. yeah. When, when, you're th- when a client comes in and says, look, last session was awful, or actually the, the, what we're doing is really not working for me. Yeah. And if your therapist is kind of is able to kind of... Be responsive. Be responsive to it, it um, can be really, really, uh, really interesting yeah. kind of stuff. I agree. So which is... Uh, do you want to go on to your one? Yeah, Sure. Um, so when you mentioned therapeutic alliance, I immediately was thinking about what was different working with kids than with adults. Yeah. Um, because most of my work has been with kids and while there's a lot of overlap, I think that one of the primary thing that things that comes up with kids that doesn't come up with adults is that invariably there's a third person in the relationship at least. So with children and early teens you always need to get um, the parents consent 
um, and often the parents will want to have some sort of involvement. Um, ideally, you know, a lot of people would say that you need to have the parents' involvement to make any kind of change, particularly for younger kids. But it means that you have to manage the dynamic, not just between you and the child, but between you and the parent, and to notice if there's anything going on between the parent and child that could be impacting your relationship with either of them. Yeah, it's just so much more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a look at an article that's called Therapist Perspectives on the Therapeutic Alliance with Children and Adolescents. Um, it was an Australian study, um, a small one compared compared to yours, <laughs> with uh, 63 survey responses. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then five interviews. Yeah. Um, and so they put together their own questionnaire that had open-ended questions about the therapist's perspectives on um, alliances, what contributed to those alliances, and barriers to forming mm-hmm. alliances. And then they framed the interview around similar questions. Like with yours, they didn't go into a lot of detail about what the questions were like or um, how long things were, how, how much they asked of therapists, but yeah. um, those were the general areas. So they also looked at the same model of therapeutic alliance, yeah. um, so Borden's, um, and they asked the therapist to rate which element of that was most important in their work with children and so the vast majority said that the bond between therapist and child is the most important um, 68% Uh, and then followed by goals so a quarter thought that that was the most important and then tasks Mm. um, so 19% and then when they asked them about what were the important contributions to the alliance they thought that from the therapist perspective working on the bond was the most important thing that you could do. Uh, They thought that then your personal qualities came into it. Uh, And then a very tiny proportion thought that training was the other element that contributed to the alliance. So a bit like what we were saying before, you're not really taught how Mm. to build that alliance. Yeah. And so then they also asked them about what they thought the child contributed. So they thought that the first thing that was mentioned was the child's investment in creating a rapport with the therapist. Yeah. They also thought attachment style was important and whatever the diagnosis or problem was. Just go through, what, give that a <coughs> common language. Of, of attachment. Of attachment. So attachment essentially is um, the way that you would describe a relationship that everyone develops with their primary caregiver when they're an infant and early childhood. And so it's been found to sort of to influence your later relationships. So for example, if you're used to being heard and responded to um, and having your needs met, then you expect that later on in life in yeah. other relationships. Or if you've had the opposite where perhaps um, someone's rejecting of you whenever you ask them for help, uh, then you go on to expect that that's going to happen in your other relationships. Yeah, or if no one sets limits, absolutely, you, then you would you learn that you know um, that you can do whatever you want. Yes, and that can have profound yeah in, in, impacts on relationships. Like so, yeah, yeah. So it can have all sorts of different impacts um, across the board, and then um, also in how how well you're able to create that relationship with a the therapist. And then from the parents' perspective. 
the therapist thought that the big one was how much the parents supported their child attending therapy. Um, so whether they respected it, whether they were involved in mm. the process. Almost half thought that that was the biggest contributing factor. And then they mentioned the relationship between parent and child. So their parenting skills, how available they were to the children. Uh, and the last thing they mentioned was the amount of insight they had into the child's problems. Yeah. So whether they actually recognised that their child had difficulties or needs that weren't being met. Yeah. Yeah. Which is surprisingly, can be surprisingly absent. Absolutely. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, they found that the therapists thought the parents were um, more influential for primary school age children than for adolescents. Um, Although it surprised me that they didn't think that the parents were as influential for preschool age children. Yeah. Whereas I think that had I been a participant, I would have said that they also would have been influential. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. What do you think the parents' uh, impact is? Like, sort of along those same kind of lines, or...? Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, they have an impact in whether the child's brought to therapy in the first place. Yeah. Um, But then uh, the way that they speak about therapy the way that they um, treat any change is really important so often um, I've worked with families where the parents have really wanted things to shift Mm. and have brought their kids in and but then when things start to shift everyone feels a little uneasy Mm. and it's kind of hard to put that in place and the parents might become anxious that things Mm. are shifting which of course the child picks up on that and you sort of end up in a cycle where everyone's anxious about about change yeah yeah it's sort of almost like a rubik's cube isn't it like yeah exactly you sort of change one element and then things start to react yeah you know, and you see that in when you know, i predominantly work with cancer patients but and some of the things that happen with that is um an adult cancer patient not kids um that someone may be going through treatment or post-treatment and sort of realizing that life is different now for whatever reason and and so we start to make some changes and discuss some stuff about how they could change some stuff and the pre-existing relationship structure gets challenged yeah and and so and and that relationship that family structure will fight to maintain itself absolutely or or you get this other interesting factor which is that um you uh the patient, someone who's been in the sick role for six months, you know, somebody who's had a really, really bad uh, run of chemotherapy and like like really, 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 really unwell, yeah. which can happen, doesn't always happen. Um, and then they get better and, and through therapy, therapy aim is to help them get back into life. Yeah. That's what we want. But then that can cause conflict within the existing family structure. Yeah, because it upsets everyone's roles. Yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I don't know, a lot of times adults come off to come to therapy without telling many people. Yeah. Like, and in some cases, their partners don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult to ascertain whether how much. Like, I've don't. I haven't thought a huge amount about how that family then responds. Yeah. Although yeah. I certainly certainly reckon that there's been times where husbands have been fairly. You know, like, Could why happen. are you seeing this guy? What you know, you're you're. Things are different now that you're yeah. seeing this person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But you're probably less likely to see those immediate yeah. 
responses. Because the patients drive themselves to therapy. Yeah. 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 And the most you might hear about it is that the patient comes in and says they've been having more arguments with their husband or yeah. things like that that kind of give you a hint that something might have changed it. Yeah. And, and I might yeah. attribute that to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so it is, it's, it's different with young people yeah. um, because of that element. The other thing that I found interesting was that more therapists reported a very strong alliance with primary school age kids and feeling really confident with that age group compared to the older or the younger. Mm. There was something about that age group that the majority of them felt comfortable with, so sort of 6 to 11. Yeah. Which, I mean, has been my experience as well, but it's just, it was interesting to kind of go... Is that because teenagers are more independent or...? I'm not sure. I think, I think for myself it's a nice balance between being able to be um, playful and utilise a lot of um, sort of creative strategies yeah. while having someone who's old enough to be able to put words to their experiences and to be able to engage with therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a nice... A nice blend. Um, but, yeah. And then in terms of barriers to the alliance, uh, for younger people, unsurprisingly, it was parental support was the main barrier so they to the alliance. The, the young, they, they surveyed, uh, sorry, they surveyed the therapist, yeah. but the therapist's perspective was still that the parents, yeah, <laughs> parental support. But they surveyed the kids as well? No. No, oh, right. No. So this was just... Therapist, so the right. kids might see it differently, yeah. and the parents probably see it differently as well. <laughs> Would be my guess. Um, financial issues were also a yeah. issue with younger people, and attendance and transport, which I assume would be linked into the parental support. If mm. the parents aren't engaged with it; they're less likely to bring them to appointments. For adolescents, um, the therapist thought that it was more about lack of motivation, or of lack of focus on goals. Yeah. Um, the adolescents having a different perception of their problems than the therapist did and then ang anxiety that the adolescents had about participating in therapy and what that might involve. Yes, yeah, so the final part was interviewing five therapists and asking them open-ended questions to describe um, their work with children and just briefly touching on some themes. One was that all of them spoke about the benefits of having a positive relationship with the parent yeah. of children of all ages. And they also mentioned a few difficulties about, you know, balancing confidentiality uh, when speaking to parents, which is quite tricky because mm. some parents want to know everything. Mm. Um, even if, say, it's a 15-year-old, you know, they'll want to know the full content of every session. Mm. And so maintaining a balance of trust between each party and yeah. what should be shared and what shouldn't. Is, is the, the notion of confidentiality when there's other family members involved is, is extremely interesting yeah. and challenging and unique. So I, I, don't, I, I genuinely don't think the general public has uh, a good understanding of just how much thought psychologists put into what, how we talk and what we say yeah. in those circumstances. So the example that was given to me when I was uh, doing my training was that you can do a session with somebody, you can walk outside and their family member can be there and they can go blah, 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 and it can be completely wrong. Yeah. 
and you you are actually not allowed to correct them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and holding that can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and where I work, which is you know in a hospital, like in with medically unwell population, the notions of confidentiality about doc like doctors say what the oncologist says to the family member is extremely different you know and and the doctors quite rightly often see themselves as someone who's providing information the family members are seeking out either information or reassurance and so as a psychologist it's very easy to fall into that trap i mean the way that i kind of navigate it is to talk in generalities or i try and kind of say well look you know if we go outside i may something i may as well say give if I'm going to talk to your family, I'm going to give them the general impression. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, I do a similar thing with kids. We'll often sit down and work out at the end of the session, okay, what are we going to talk to mum and dad about yeah. that we did today? And then we do that together. How long does that take? Depends on on the kid. Yeah. Um, I usually allow sort of, you know, five to ten minutes at the end of the session to feed back to mum and dad. Yeah, right. Um, but... Kids are surprisingly um, definitive on what they want to feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them will have an entire narrative yeah. and others will say nothing and we have to work out something. That would it's, be quite therapeutically, that would be quite an interesting exercise as a therapist yeah. to go through. You could tell you where you're at, tell you what, what's going on. Absolutely. And then you often then have the external pressure of a parent asking for more and having to put those boundaries in place mm. or even like with your example teachers in schools often if you're working in a school and you're seeing one of their students because teachers don't have the same um, rules around confidentiality they assume they share knowledge between different teachers yeah. about a particular student and so they assume that you can tell them everything that happened in your session and it can be quite confronting and come across that you're being secretive or things like that if yeah. you don't share that. So, yeah, you're often managing and multiple. It kind of, <laughs> and, it, well, and, it, and it kind of gets into a therapeutic alliance that you as a therapist have with external actors. Yeah. Right, so, like, so, so my example is I can know a lot about a particular patient's history and we'll have not had permission to share that information or that thing one particular case where i could have i know that the patient if i'd said to the patient look i want to say something about your history to make the medical team explain yeah to understand and that patient would have been like yes totally that would be fine but therapeutically the goal would was to get her to do explain that for herself yeah. right and because that was a therapeutic goal for lots of different complicated reasons and just holding that so challenging. Yeah, holding and that tension between like, what different could, people want. I could fix this. And yeah. Like, um, and, and, and therapeutic alliance-wise, the fastest way to destroy a therapeutic relationship is to um, breach confidentiality. Absolutely, yeah. I don't, I, I don't think that there could be a better way to do it, to destroy no. it. No, um, and that's the challenge when you've got other people involved because especially other people who... Um, may have rights to some information, yeah. may not, like it, um, providing enough information to kind of fit what they're asking, Yeah. but not breaking confidentiality is a really tricky, 
tricky balance. Yeah. Yeah. And making sure you keep the client informed of what you have to share, if you have to share something, yeah. or having them involved in that process. It's, yeah, minefield. All right, so the last couple of things were um, obviously emphasising the bond between client and therapist. The interviewees said the same thing. Uh, then they also mentioned creativity, which is certainly something that I enjoy, that with kids you can use creative ways to build an alliance that you wouldn't perhaps with other mm. populations. Um, well, it's just not used commonly with other populations. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so things like um, art or sport. Like I can't think of the amount of times that I've played soccer with a child client for an entire session yeah, right. um, to build that relationship because soccer is their favourite thing and we talk while they teach me how to catch a ball because I'm terribly uncoordinated. Yeah. Um, and so being able to use those kind of approaches in a different way, whereas perhaps it's not as expected in adults. Work no. that you would do something, and I imagine like that. that would be harder to do with a teenager, yeah, rather than a six to the six to eleven year old, yeah, population. I'm thinking of they're work, ready, if, they're more ready for play, yeah, to, yeah. I worked yeah. with a seventeen year old, and uh, yeah, trying to get her engaged in therapy was, I, I, I had no experience with that population, and yeah, it was really interesting to kind of think creatively mm. on how how can we, what 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 do I need to do to build this. Yeah. Therapeutic alliance because that that alliance wasn't as strong as nearly as strong as it could have been. Yeah. Although, um, it, I think there was there. I think it was probably stronger than I thought it was. Yeah. She 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 would come back. And then the very last point was about therapist self awareness, so that to work with kids and build that sort of relationship with kids and with their parents you need to have an understanding of your own childhood and your own models of parenting. Yeah, so, right. you know, we all have perspectives on the way children are raised by different people. And as much as you can go, well, I shouldn't judge a parent for doing that or I, you know, should keep my own experiences out of that. You just never will be able to You do can't. That. No. Yeah. So being aware of how you might be playing into those dynamics or challenging them in a way that you're not expecting to, but it just naturally happens. So, yeah, so that was it. Question with that, um, do you, because that's therapist rating. Yeah. Like, in comparison to the study I talked about, which was actually looking at client perceptions of therapist, um, the therapeutic alliance, and looking and then looking at actual outcome, do you reckon... I think it would be good to have both yeah there i i found one study that looked at parent child and yeah. therapist ratings yeah. um but it was a single time point yeah um and so i felt like there was more juiciness in yeah i mean it's extremely this. juicy like i i, I yeah um but, but it would because you want to get it from multiple perspectives yeah because i like yeah. the because i'm struck by they're like oh it's the bond yeah and I'd be fascinated to know whether it's as strong as that, and I think that a lot of, I think a lot of um, therapists do um, reflexively uh, answer. Oh, you know, it's all about the bond in yeah. therapy. Um, when look, I would say, 
it's quite interesting because there's a lot of manualized treatments that are prescriptive. So manualized treatment is I've got a phobia or I've got obsessive compulsive disorder or even like I've got social anxiety or I've got depression and you can do a manualized treatment that's six sessions or 12 sessions or X, 18 sessions or however many sessions that follows a thing and that would very much, in my mind, that's the, the, the you know, the opposite of building a bond. It's yeah. very much task and goal focus and there's a lot of good evidence for those programs. Absolutely, and They're yeah. not saying the bond wouldn't work in there's not bond within a manualized treatment but um it shows that there are different ways of achieving the same thing yeah and that i mean i suppose it's our nature to go well this thing that we're putting all, a lot of effort yeah into is really important yeah. and i mean the research shows that it is important but perhaps it's not yeah as important as we rate it well, this, as well, there's well, other this, factors yeah, this model is there's three parts to yeah. it and one <laughs> and that's just one yeah so like and i wonder about that like a couple of times where i've stepped out and sort of acted in a way with client to to be like you know look you're not doing what you need to be doing the goal is this you're not doing it you know what's going on we need to get this done and sort of being more directive <laughs> yeah directive like <clears throat> like a, a bit of a school teacher kind of and that had tremendous uh, mm. beneficial effects you know and i think well maybe i'm speaking for myself but i know a lot of therapists who i think struggle with that element of therapy and i think a lot of people therapists worry about dis- disrupting the bond yeah um at the expense of not focusing on the task and the goals yeah absolutely because that bond is held up as the pinnacle of what you're doing I think it's kind of a bit narcissistic for therapists. I yeah, it is like, a little. Oh, I, I have... I'm the important person. Mm. <laughs> exactly right. Yes. All right. Mm. Let's take a break. Yes. And we'll come back with things that caught our eye. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things... You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks for tuning in to hear us talk about psychology. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to subscribe to the pod on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episode. Also, please rate the show or even leave us a written review on iTunes. The more that people do so, the more that the show will rise in the ratings, meaning that more people will be able to see and find the show. We are also interested in hearing from you if you have any suggestions for topics for the show or if you have some general feedback. What you need to do is email us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. That's T-W-O. S-H-R-I-N-K-S-P-O-D at gmail.com. And don't forget to have a quick look at our website, creatively titled twoshrinkspod.com. Yep, we're imaginative. It's where we post links to articles discussed as well as some other bits and pieces you might find interesting. And a quick shout out to James Grimm, a Melbourne-based musician who did the theme for the pod. We love it. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. So we're back. So we, uh, this is a segment, we've done our serious conversation. This is our segment where we uh, talk about research articles that have caught our eye uh, over the past little while because we read lots of different stuff and you don't get a chance to read it all. And sometimes there's something that's really interesting that's got no relevance to what we're doing. Hmm. So what have you got for this week? Well, I found something slightly controversial. (laughs) 
Controversial. Yes. <laughs> but depending on your um, philosophical slant. Um, dog people and cat people <laughs> <laughs> differ on dominance-related traits. Really? Mm, yes. So it's from the um, journal called Anthrozoos. <laughs> Anthrozoos. Yes. And so basically they looked at comparing the um, big five personality traits. Mm-hmm. So neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. Openness to, to experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, big five. So there's lots of different personality factors, but you can basically reduce them down to those five factors. Five factors. And I think you can even reduce them down to the big three. Yeah, I think so. So they compared people who self-identified as dog people or cat people yes. on these traits. And they their assumption was that we tend to seek out uh, experiences or other people that complement our own personality. Yep. And so they thought that dog people would have traits that were higher on dominance. Because they would want a pet that was subservient yep. to them. Yep. So they took two samples, um, one of 506 people, one of 503, so quite a <laughs> huge, <laughs> huge that, were, <laughs> that were recruited online. And they found that indeed they were correct. So the association of being a dog person uh, with social dominance orientation and competitiveness Uh, was present and persisted when gender differences were controlled for. Um, Were more women cat people? I believe so, (laughs) yes, (laughs) yes. But they found no difference on interpersonal dominance or on narcissism. So it was dominance in what? So it was social social dominance orientation. So your general preference. Mm-hmm. for being dominant in a social yep. situation and competitiveness yep. were more common for dog owners. And they concluded that individuals who are high on these traits tend to prefer submissive pets such as dogs whose temperament complements their preference for dominance. <laughs> and so any... take that, dog people. <laughs> take that, dog people. You're a cat person. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> why I chose it. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Uh, so, so uh, la- last uh, last part, I talked uh, a bit about uh, Star Wars and and sort of ergonomics and er- ergonomics, the Death Star and ergonomics. Um, and uh, and I was thinking about some NASA stuff. I think I'd said something mm. about NASA. Anyway, so I, I I was looking up what I could find on astronauts. There's a lot of stuff when you do a search on astronauts in the scientific literature um on like the effects of microgravity on you know all sorts of biological processes sure um that yeah it looks rather dry but the 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 thing that really caught my eye so it's a study the lead author is yate by david b yaden is the lead author and it's in psychology of consciousness theory and research practice and it's a 2016 paper and the the paper's called the overview effect awe and self-transcended experience in spaceflight. Mm. And so it's really um, just a really interesting article that kind of spans a lot of different fields. Uh, really, I, I, I find astronauts quite an interesting thing because they're some of the smartest people. Yeah. Um, like, well, on Earth or not on Earth, <laughs> yeah. I guess, right? And they're so unique in many different ways. So uh, what, what I... Th- thought was really interesting was just some of the quotes 
um, in it from astronauts. But they talk about, so the, the article uh, opens with like, the Earthrise is a now universally recognized photo of Earth taken in 1968 by NASA astronaut William Anders, and it provides an, or, provides an awe-inspiring view of our world from the moon. So it's like, so if you've not seen it, just type in Earthrise mm. into Google, and it's an image of Earth rising over the, the lunar landscape. And it's really, 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 really great. And, so then it's, and they sort of say, you know, for the first time, com- concepts of humanity in the world appeared in plain sight, not just for astronauts, but for all of civilization. So essentially taking something abstract to something vis- visceral and something felt. Yeah. And so they sort of say, you know, well, if a single photo could influence society's cultural awareness, how much more tremendous must that effect be in person? Mm. And so they talk about they, the overview effect of the profound reaction to viewing Earth from outside the atmosphere. And so, um, yeah, really, really yeah. interesting. They provide sort of a conceptual model and then they talk about well, experiencing the feelings of awe, the um, self-transcendence um, and perspective and, and identity. And they, they talk a lot about kind of the different research into like the emotion of awe and self-transcendence mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but what I thought was really striking was just some of the quotes that they put into the paper. I've, I've got a couple. Uh, so astronaut Edgar Mitchell described it as an explosion of awareness, an overwhelming sense of oneness and connectedness, accompanied by an ecstasy and an epiphany. Um, uh, it's hard to explain how amazing and magical this experience is. First of all, there's the astounding beauty and the diversity of the planet itself, scrolling across your view at what appears to be a smooth and stately pace. I'm happy to report that no amount of prior study or training can fully prepare anybody for the awe and wonder this inspires. Hmm. That's uh, astronaut, the NASA astronaut, Catherine D. One of the things that they can talk about is that um, it sort of changes some of the schemas that, that you have, which a scheme is like a mental representation of something, like the schemata, basically. And so they said, sort of, I mean, during space flight, the psyche of each astronaut is reshaped. Having seen the sun, the stars, and our planet, you become more full of life, softer. You begin to look at all living things with greater trepidation and you begin to be more kind and patient with the people around you. Hmm. So it's really... When do we go? <laughs> <laughs> when do we go? Um, and uh, I've got a new favourite word. It's hmm. the field of bioastronautics. So. Oh, I like it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Two Shrinks and a Microphone. We'll catch you next time. See you later. English muffin, mm-hmm. peanut butter, and a coffee the size of my head. Yeah, right. But so, but like butter and then peanut no. butter? Just straight peanut butter? Yeah, I don't do the whole butter, peanut butter. Yeah, I know. Calm down. <laughs> it wasn't the way I was raised, but it's the way I prefer it. I'm not sure that that's right.